Hello, and welcome to the Inspired Educator Podcast, where educators share insights to improve the educational experience. I'm your host, Dr. Yuling Lee. I'm recording this episode on March 28th, 2020. It's just a few days after the leaders of the country have announced the spread of coronavirus disease, uh, COVID-19. It's a new infectious disease which is spreading around the world. And in my context, in Canada, much like many other countries, we are asked to practice social distancing as one of the community-based measures to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. More specifically, around two weeks ago, my university, uh, Trinity Western University, and all other Canadian universities began shifting all their classes online. Now, at the end of spring break, students in K-12, kindergarten to grade 12, they're going back to school. But schools must also adapt to the new realities of online teaching or, or distance education. So in light of COVID-19, I wanted to share that this podcast will focus on the realities of teaching and learning in this new context. I will continue to periodically upload my interviews with other educational experts, but I thought it would be more timely to share some of the things that I'm learning about what it means to educate in such challenging times. So for this episode, I wanted to share a journal article from Health Affairs. It's a peer-reviewed healthcare journal described by the Washington Post as the Bible of health policy. The article is titled, Closing the Schools, Lessons from the 1918 to 1919 U.S. Influenza Pandemic. Well, I thought this article is quite helpful as it paints a picture of how different cities and their schools were wrestling with the different interventions necessary to help mitigate the influenza pandemic over a hundred years ago. The authors are Alexandra Stern, Martin Citron, or Cetron, and Howard Markle. Stern, at the time of the article, was associate director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School. Cetrin, who was and still is a director of the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine at the Centers for Disease Control, and Markle, who was and remains a professor and director of the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School. So in the following, I'll read some excerpts from the article that I found fascinating. Um, during the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic in the U.S., most urban communities closed K-12 public schools for an extended period of time, in some locations for as long as 15 weeks. Typically, the order to close schools came late in the epidemic curve of cities, weeks if not days after deaths from influenza and pneumonia mounted. School closure orders almost always were issued in concert with additional non-pharmaceutical interventions such as quarantine, isolation, bans on public gatherings, staggered business hours, and even orders to use face masks. This was a hundred years ago, sounds familiar. The U.S. historical record demonstrates that on multiple occasions when faced with a contagious crisis that affects children, school dismissal and voluntary absenteeism are common responses. Past experiences also revealed that school dismissal tends to be applied by a particular community as a reaction 
if not a demand, only after a contagious disease has spread through a community and not as a preemptive public health measure. So the authors of this paper state that the aim of their paper is not to measure quantitatively whether school closures during the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic did or did not mitigate or even control influenza transmission. Rather, they seek to establish useful criteria for evaluating which social, political, and organizational factors facilitated or hindered the implementation of school closure during the pandemic. So the authors really, they present qualitative findings um, against the backdrop of this expanding body of studies by historians, statisticians, and modelers that, that kind of suggest the sustained layer and early implementation of several what they call non-pharmaceutical interventions, including school closures, and how that can have beneficial effects in terms of lowering the peak mortality burden during the pandemic. This is the same type of response that we are hearing now, so I thought this article was especially timely for me to come across. So let me get more into this. Um, their study was based on 43 of the most populous U.S. cities during the 24-week period um, of the second and third waves of the 1918-1919 pandemic, specifically from September 1st, 1918 to March 31st, 1919. These cities uh, encompassed all U.S. urban communities with standardized weekly pneumonia and influenza mortality data that are contained in the most reliable source of the era, which is the weekly health index of the U.S. Census Bureau. So the crux of the article is a qualitative analysis um, that determines four salient categories of city experiences with school closures. First, cities um, that kept schools opened and relied heavily on the daily medical inspections of students. Second, cities that close schools and experience interagency conflict and low compliance with non-pharmaceutical interventions. Third, cities that close schools and experience inconsistent and sporadic interagency cooperation and mixed compliance with non-pharmaceutical interventions. And lastly, fourth, cities that close schools and experience interagency cooperation and high compliance with non-pharmaceutical interventions. So the first category, schools kept open. While well, two of America's largest cities in 1918 were New York uh, City and Chicago, and they kept schools open and relied on enhanced medical surveillance of students. The health commissioners of these cities were guided uh, by the philosophy that children were, quote, better off in schools under supervision than playing about in the streets, end quote. So the strong faith that these cities placed in the medical inspection of students reflected their leadership in the early 20th century school hygiene movement, a major investment in a health infrastructure that included physicians and nurses. Um, and these cities, there were school medical corps that were charged with carefully inspecting classrooms and pupils, and sometimes with extending services to home. Um, also of note that this first category, many of the classrooms in the cities um, did eventually empty out because of high rates of absenteeism. Okay, the second category, closed schools and interagency friction. 
So the authors found nine cities experienced this type of interagency friction, and above all, between boards of health and of education. And there were a myriad of difficulties with the acceptance of non-pharmaceutical interventions among local residents. Also, no adjudicating mechanism, whether a strong leader or an appropriately designed emergency advisory council, emerged to quell these conflicts. So the situation in Minneapolis, for example, was particularly rancorous and unfolded in noisy debates between school and health officials at special meetings. Moreover, Local residents did not hesitate to chide municipal agencies. For example, one parent incensed that the health department overruled the education board enforcing a school dismissal wrote to the Minneapolis school superintendent saying, I take great pleasure in endorsing your courageous stand in protesting strongly against the arbitrary and unfair closing of our public schools and if an object to injure is shown, they ought to be prosecuted and punished. Well, there were also conflicts in Baltimore, for example, but in the reverse direction, the school board acted in defiance of the health department's orders to keep schools open, abruptly sending students home at the height of the pandemic. So that was the second category. The third category would be inconsistent cooperation and conflict. 11 cities fell in the middle of the spectrum of school closure experiences, encountering inconsistent cooperation, sporadic conflict, and mixed compliance with non-pharmaceutical interventions. These cities appeared to have suffered from one or two weak links that complicated a potentially smoother rollout of school dismissal. For the most part, these problems emanated from pre-existing conditions in the political and social environment, which fostered suspicion and miscommunication among leaders and community members. And this set of cities kind of illustrates the importance of trust and transparency to public health interventions and communication. For example, Portland, Oregon, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, they were subject to state-mandated non-pharmaceutical interventions. And in both instances, local officials disagreed with these policies. In Denver, Colorado, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, pushback against other non-pharmaceutical interventions, including a face mask order and an alcohol ban, spilled over into the broader dynamics of community mitigation and hampered school closure efforts. In Denver, uh, health officials initially uh, responded by scapegoating Italian immigrants for spreading the influenza. In one of the few instances of ethnic discrimination during the 1918-1919 U.S. influenza pandemic that we have been able to document. So that was a third category. The last category um, is the positive interagency relations and cooperation. The authors write, one of the most intriguing lessons from the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic is that 20 of the 43 cities experienced relatively high degrees of interagency cooperation and compliance with non-pharmaceutical interventions. The positive outcomes shared by these cities appear to be the result of good coordination among local, state, and, when applicable, federal levels of government effective local leadership, robust volunteerism, especially from teachers and nurses, 
and other social, economic, and cultural factors. So, for example, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they benefited from a long tradition of collaboration among various municipal agencies and the health department, which had worked hard over the years to acquire the trust of the city's diverse immigrant populace. And in St. Louis, Missouri, the bold leadership of the health commissioner was instrumental to smooth the implementation of a menu of non-pharmaceutical interventions, including extended school closures. Rochester, New York, instituted what appeared to have been a successful health campaign to reach ethnic communities, which may have contributed positively to school dismissal policies. And that is an example of the fourth category. So the overall um, gist of this article is that the authors are presenting this qualitative analysis, which suggests if the scenario rises again, in which U.S. health officials decide to dismiss students from schools, smoother implementation will be realized or should be realized by a clear delineation of legal authority and municipal organization, as well as existing patterns of trust and transparency between public health officials and the populace. The authors further suggest that uh, communities that emphasize public health risk communication, particularly to undeserved minority and immigrant populations, will likely experience higher degree of compliance with non-pharmaceutical interventions. And finally, a preparedness and dialogue are keys to such smooth implementation as per uh, CDC guidance. Advanced planning that brings public health, education, officials, and political leaders together to work would require all this. In the discussion part of the article, they do note that the critical epidemiological metric that will guide decisions about implementing non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as school dismissal, is ultimately the severity of the circulating virus. And they go on to say, if we face a 1918-like or worse scenario where tens of thousands of Americans are dying, the public might more readily agree to sweeping non-pharmaceutical interventions. In contrast, in a situation that mirrors seasonal or slightly worse influenza rates, such public acceptance might not be so forthcoming, given the inherent consequences of social and economic disruption. So after reading this article, I found strange comfort in knowing that educators, community officials, along with other leaders, were struggling in discerning how to best educate during a pandemic over 100 years ago. At least in Canada, we have the hard decision to implement what these authors called non-pharmaceutical interventions, um, specifically such as social distancing and closing many businesses and schools and other important communal spaces. And this has resulted in major social and economic disruption. And we still have no end in sight as to when everything can or will ever get back to normalcy. So I'm hopeful that uh, things can return to normal. I'm hopeful that as I continue reading, I can find more things to share about how we can better educate during this time of crisis, specifically in our current pandemic. Um, so we'll see. I'll keep digging up different articles and, and different uh, sources of news that I find intriguing that may be helpful to you as a listener. So until the next episode... 
May you stay safe and know that you are doing good work. See you next time. Mm -hmm.